You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, everybody. I am back in Seattle. I am in the office in the podcast booth with Nancy Hartuni and the producer of the Savage Lovecast. We want At to first let... I was afraid. <laughs> I was petrified. Thinking I would never. I can't even remember the word. This is how sort of upset and distraught I am. Come on, this I is I your can't remember anthem. the words to I will survive. We will survive. We will survive. And we will be there for you at this time. Nancy and I are here at an otherwise pretty much deserted office to record this week's Savage Love Cast and to get it out to people who are home, hopefully, if they're doing the right thing, if you're social distancing, as they say, or physically distancing yourself from others and being responsible and helping to flatten the curve. I'm going to flatten your curve. <laughs> or enjoy the curves of the people that you're <laughs> holed up with. That is safe. We talk about that later on the show. Uh, we wanted to, to get a show out to you this week and every week. We are going to keep them coming. We're so psyched to be here for you. Podcasting is like this uh, kind of uh, now more elevated medium, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I've been relying on podcasts a lot myself this last week. I, I was traveling. I was out of town. Uh, managed to fly home on empty planes and get through airports before the Trump administration blew up the airports. I didn't get trapped in one of those epic lines and we're coming to you live from seattle washington american epicenter yeah yeah it's really weird here you guys if you're not in seattle i'll tell you it's really weird but the track of this virus is however weird it is someplace else that's how weird it's going to get where you are that has sort of been the the arc of this uh, epidemic now pandemic and while things are super weird here in seattle and king county and everything is closing down in washington state there's plenty of food in the grocery stores a lot of restaurants are open for takeout, and some are doing uh, delivery services. People are checking in with their neighbors here uh, just to make sure that everybody has what they need. Um, and there is a kind of camaraderie in the, the stress and pressure uh, and direness of the situation that is emerging, and that is hopeful to see and helpful to see. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like here in Seattle, we're all a little bit feeling... Ah, I don't know if this is premature, but we feel a little bit smug about living here because our leadership is actually doing the right things and taking the right actions. And we hope that we can do it right here and that the rest of the country will follow. Well, we have elected Democrats running our city, county and state and Democrats believe in science and empiricism and uh, expertise and, and relying on the advice of uh, people who know what the fuck they're talking about, as opposed to what we've been subjected to at Trump White House press conferences over the last week. And so, yeah, hopefully other states, other cities, other leaders, including fucking Republican elected officials, are going to take their cues from Jay Inslee, our governor, who seems to be doing everything. That snake. Yeah, that snake, Jay Inslee, as the president of the United States dubbed him, who seems to be doing what he can in a responsible way to protect all of us. That said, a lot of people are really scared right now. A lot of people are out of work. Uh, basically, they closed down Las Vegas yesterday, which threw tens of thousands of people out of work. Michael Hobbs at HuffPo, freaking savage lovecast guest, has a piece up about how sex workers are being hit really hard uh, by this economically. Uh, and I'm scared. You're scared. We're all scared, but we're going to get through this. 
And we're going to do our best to get guests who can address the issues that are going to come up with intimacy during the time of plague. Uh, we've got a couple guests on the show today that uh, address that. I know something about the issues that come up. Yeah, you've been here before, haven't intimacy you? Intimacy in the time of plague. It was funny. I was saying to a friend that in the last two weeks felt like living 1980 to 1984 in two weeks. That we went from, oh, yeah, there's this thing. Have you heard about this virus? Have you heard about some people getting this gay cancer? To everybody terrified and locked in their homes alone uh, pretty quickly. Just a week ago, uh, you know, I was still traveling. I was still out there. People were still going out. And it reminded me of that moment during the, you know, beginning stages of the HIV AIDS crisis where people said, oh, you got to be really careful. But people did nothing differently. Nobody's behaviors changed, even as everyone acknowledged that we were living in a moment when shit was going down. But people kept doing the same goddamn thing. And then there was this tipping point with HIV AIDS where suddenly the seriousness of the situation, the peril we were all in became clear to us and everyone's behavior changed seemingly overnight, you know, in, in memory overnight. And that happened in the last week. Really, the last week was 1980 to 1984 for those of us who lived through the, the, the AIDS crisis. And it's been the worst kind of deja vu. And it's that, that time is now. For, for those of you not in Seattle... I think that y'all are maybe playing catch up a little bit. I've noticed that just looking at my Facebook feed and talking to people in my life that don't live in Seattle. And uh, I'm sorry to say it, but y'all got to stop going to restaurants. Y'all got to stop going to concerts. Y'all got to, you got to start distancing yourselves right now. It's really important. And like, if you haven't yet educated yourself on the concept of flattening the curve, it's, you really need to read up on that and figure out what that means and start acting on it right now. This is so stupid. This is my personal little pet peeve soapbox. We were looking out the window. Plague pet peeves with Nancy and Dan. <laughs> so this this woman was, was petting my cat. We saw her petting my cat outside of the window. And I ran out and I yelled at her, you guys, don't be petting people's pets right now. That's like shaking hands. What are you, a dummy? <laughs> You're going to get your coronavirus all over my cat and yeah. my cat all over your coronavirus and then send my cat back into my house. To get all over me and my kids. Exactly. You and I have been physically distancing ourselves from the world the last few days. We've come together in the studio briefly, but we are maintaining a physical distance. Uh, what are your tips? I've only had a couple of days of this so far. Uh, I'm wondering what you guys are doing at your house uh, to pass the time and to stay sane. You know, we're doing all the usual things. Like my kid, my kids are, I've got two kids uh, and one of them is in elementary school. And so we've got like a little like chart of uh, activities that she needs to stick to every day. And she has vowed that she will bless her. Um, and, you know, we are now like allowing for one or two, like one-on-one -on -one getting together as long as they don't touch each other, like play dates where they can get together because like for our mental health, we feel like that's really important. Mm -hmm. But, you know, no more getting together with groups larger than five for sure. Um, and then, um, you know, like we were watching a lot of movies. The CDC says you can gather in maybe groups of 50 or fewer, but luckily for us, we can't fit 50 people into our dining room. Um, we're reading a lot of books. We're hanging out in the living room. We're listening to a lot of musicals on vinyl, which I haven't had time to do a lot lately. But now that I'm at home 24 hours a day, except to come in and record the show, 
uh, we're doing that. Yeah, I've been buying books. I'm hoarding books like toilet paper. <laughs> hey, it's a good time to learn a musical instrument. Yeah, and some books, Art of the Deal, maybe you could use as toilet paper. <laughs> well, those are our tips from the American Epicenter. Read books, physically distance yourself. And if you're in part of the country where people are still going to concerts and shows and movie theaters and gyms and restaurants, do yourself and the people in your life who may be at greater risk a favor and stop doing those things now. Stay home. And if you need to pass the time, call your elected representatives, demand justice, demand access to medical care for all at all times, not just during a health crisis, and demand that we don't just bail out bankers this time, that we bail out the people who are losing their jobs, we bail out people who may not be able to make rent or pay their mortgages in the next few months, that we bail out the people, not just the stockholders. Yeah, and keep calling us with your perverted questions. Yes, we're going to keep doing the show. Please keep your questions coming, your perverted questions, your wholesome questions, your wedding questions, although your wedding should be postponed indefinitely. We welcome your wedding questions in advance of your wedding because people need a distraction. People are going to be diverted and sometimes need something else to think about besides this pandemic. It was really important to us during the worst years of the AIDS epidemic, that we still had our pleasures, that we still had joy, that we still had music and art and life. That said, at this moment, because coronavirus is much easier to contract, we need to enjoy those things siloed. We need to enjoy those things with the people that we're isolating ourselves with, the people that we're passing the time with, uh, and podcasting and calling into shows like this, I think is a good way of passing the time, of sharing stories, of staying connected. We really are, and this sounds trite, we really are all in this together. And my husband brought up something. You know the Spanish flu? That sucked. You know what happened after the Spanish flu? The Roaring Twenties. We're going to get out of this. This isn't forever. But wait a minute, what happened after the Roaring Twenties? Let's not not fast forward from there. (laughs) Whatever you're doing at home to help pass the time and to stay sane, we're really honored that the Savage Lovecast is a part of that. And if this helps, if the show helps you in any way, We're thrilled to keep bringing it to you, and we're going to keep bringing it to you. Yes, we are. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my aids, like normal. And two frequent guests, two of our favorite guests, Dr. Debbie Herbenick and Dr. Jen Gunter, join us to quickly talk about a couple of aspects of the pandemic. And coming up on the Magnum, Brian Earp, co-author of the new book, Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships, joins us to talk about gray marriages, about ecstasy, and about what we know now about MDMA. All that coming up on today's show. It's been nice to be in the same room with someone, Nancy, other than Terry. (laughs) Same here, baby. Hey, Dan. I am a cisgendered gay male, and I have a question about erogenous zones. My husband, he is hardwired just like right there at the nipple. You pinch it or tweak it, and it drives him crazy. Well, I'm not hardwired that way at all. In fact, it kind of hurts. But I am hardwired in a different place, and that's my hip bones. That's right. If someone grabs onto my hip bones or rubs on them, it's great. Uh, It goes straight to the cock. So there really is no problem about it. We've just never heard anyone else or come across anyone else with that erogenous zone. Have you heard about it before? Is it called something? Maybe you or your callers will shed a little light. Haven't heard of this before. This is the first I've heard of somebody specifically citing their hip bones. Of course, for a lot of people, the hips are an erogenous zone. It's very close to 
both the uh, bone bone, the bones are, and the butt zone, which is often bone, particularly in same-sex male relationships. So it doesn't seem incredible to me or that strange to me. It's not like hearing from someone who likes to have their eyeballs licked. And I have heard from people in the past who like to have their eyeballs licked. Happy to toss this out there. If there are any listeners out there who are similarly wired, whose hip bones are similarly wired, any hip bone stimulation goes straight to your junk. Give us a call. Share your story. 206-302-2064. But to you, caller, I would say don't give up on your nipples. There are a lot of people out there who early in life, men, I mean, a lot of men people, a lot of male-bodied people, who, where the nipples aren't wired, where nipple stimulation doesn't really do much for them. Uh, but with time and attention and keeping the nipples in play, suddenly your nipples can become wired. And it's an amazing feeling when someone touches your tits and it goes right to your deck. It's worth the effort. It's worth circling back and revisiting nipple stimulation every once in a while to see if your nipples don't eventually one day kick into gear as they do for many men later in life. A lot of men in their 20s and 30s, nips don't do anything for them. 30s, 40s, up, nips do a lot for them. So don't give up on nips and don't be embarrassed about your hips. Joining me by phone, one of our favorite, favorite people, Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Vagina Bible, a bestseller and New York Times columnist. Dr. Gunter has some experience with social distancing, which is what we're all being asked to do right now, and wrote a column about it for The New York Times. Hey, Dr. Gunter, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you, Dan? Uh, I'm good. Where are you distancing yourself socially at the moment? Uh, well, I'm distancing myself uh, at home, uh, just really going out to get groceries, and uh, we're all trying to figure out what to do at the hospital about trying to do as many visits as possible, uh, you know, remotely by uh, um, phone conferencing and, and things like that. So some people out there, myself included, have been freaking out a little bit at the prospect of having to isolate ourselves for the next few weeks or months. You did it for a year and a half. I did. I did. And, and, if, I, and if I can do it, you can do it. And why did you do it? Why were you social distancing before social distancing was cool and mandatory? Yeah, so this was back in 2003, and I had a very complicated triplet pregnancy and delivered very early, and one of my sons passed away, and the other two were in the intensive care unit for about 11 weeks. And uh, when they were discharged, they both had severe lung disease and were on oxygen. And in addition, one of my sons, Oliver, has um, a really serious heart defect, and he had his first heart surgery when he was three pounds. And so my kids were uniquely vulnerable to getting infections, and Oliver especially. And I was told by every medical professional to stop that the most important thing for their health, for, their, for them to live, was to not catch infections, even a cold could kill them. So the only way you can do that is by keeping away from other people. And so I basically did that for a year and a half. Any tips for people who are having to do this now? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, it's not going to be a year and a half. So that, you know, and I didn't actually think it was going to be a year and a half when I started, but when someone tells you that your kid could die, you're, that you, and you've already just seen one of your children die, you're pretty motivated. But I think that it's really important as a physician, you know, I know that that uh, these infections can be overwhelming, can kill people who are otherwise healthy, especially older people. And I'm starting to put myself in that category because I'm in my 50s. So I think that the tips are that you just want to minimize contact. Social distancing doesn't mean that you can never see another person. It means being really mindful about 
how you're interacting with people and who you're interacting with. So you need groceries to eat, uh, but you don't need to go to the movies. You know, so you think about what do you need versus what do you want and to try to just focus on your needs. You had a you describe a very strict regimen of hand washing and sanitizing things in your house to protect your children. You know, particularly if you had to leave the house uh, and return or had to go to the doctors with your kids, they needed medical care, they had medical appointments while you were social distancing uh, to protect them. Uh, Did that become second nature, the hand washing, the sanitizing? Uh, Because right now I I constantly have to remind myself to do it. And, you know, the stakes are lower and more abstract because I'm not protecting anyone but, you know, some adults in my house and it doesn't feel as consequential or dire as it must have felt for you. But at what point do, do these measures become habit? How long did that take? Well, you have to remember, because I was a physician, I was already pretty into hand sanitizing, you know, at work. So it was a very familiar, you know, hand washing and hand sanitizing was a very familiar concept to me. And when my kids were in the intensive care unit, you know, you had to clean yourself before touching them afterwards. And so it was pretty ingrained. But, you know, I got a lot of stares in the community. I mean, I would whip out my hand sanitizer. People would, you know, they see two little babies in a stroller. You've got oxygen tanks hanging out and they want to come up and talk to you. And I I don't know if this person's been around a kid in a daycare or not. So I'm just like, sorry, we don't talk to strangers. I mean, people must have thought I was, you know, um, eccentric, (laughs) but, you know, I just walked away from people and I didn't think anything about, you know, people thinking it was rude because it was my children's health and, uh, you know, sitting in, you know, waiting rooms and hospitals for appointments, you know, felt very scary for me. And so, you know, we just sat in corners, we hand sanitized, I didn't touch anything. uh, And, uh, you know, magazines and doctors waiting rooms, nothing like that. And this was all pre social media. So there was no phone to play, you know, have your phone to play with, you didn't have other things to do. So, you know, I just uh, watched TV in the waiting room and that was gonna be my next next question. You know, we all have, we have social media now to distract us. Uh, I've heard someone suggest that we shouldn't call it social distancing because we can stay connected socially. It's physical distancing that we're doing uh, so that, you know, not to, to say social distancing sounds like you're isolating yourself, but but you are going to be more isolated. What were your sort of non-hand washing strategies to stay sane while you were doing well, this for such a long time? Yeah, I, um, well, I, I, I read a lot, I have to say, and this was even before, you know, this was back in the day when your cell phone, you know, you worried about your minutes, mm-hmm. you know, that you know, so it wasn't like I could just call like friends and a lot of my family and friends live in Canada and, and the United Kingdom. So there was no way to just kind of call people. I had to, you know, go to the landline <laughs> to call people. I don't even have a landline now. So, so I just, um, I think for me, I wasn't one step removed from the danger. And I think that's part of the problem for many of us, you know, who, who aren't in super high risk groups, we're sort of a step removed. So we don't maybe feel quite the the same urgency for me. It was, well, I have to hunker down. There was no choice. Mm -hmm. We had really great friends that, um, that really accepted what we needed to do. So we had a friend who didn't have children. So for us, the highest risk was a cold from a kid who came over every Thursday night and brought food. So, and he was obsessive about wash, you know, washing his hands when he'd walk in, he didn't, you know, touch the kids. He came in and just provided us company and that I've never forgotten that kindness. He did that for, for 18 months. 
that is something that people can do to help themselves stay sane. If you're not in a high risk group and you know someone who is, who the danger of leaving the house to go get those groceries is much more, is greater than the danger for you to leave the house and go get groceries. Maybe you could help look after that person. Uh, I have to say, reading your essay, uh, I was delighted personally to see that show tunes were a help to you because they've been a help to me. <laughs> I did that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, um, so after I would bring my kids home from appointments, you know, cause what's the safest thing to do is drive around in your car. Nobody can talk to you. And, uh, because the boys were on oxygen, I had this elaborate mirror system rigged up in the car so I could look in the rear view mirror and see that their oxygen was in their nose. And I would drive around Denver singing, you know, Oklahoma and, you know, the Pirates of Penzance and, you know, all the old show tunes from my high school musicals. Well, I've been belting them out in the house, getting out the vinyl, listening to Mame and Chorus Line and Carousel, one of my most problematic faves. Uh, Dr. Jen Gunter, oh, yeah, yeah and, bla- and, and singing and driving everybody else in the house crazy. It's actually created some social distancing in my house because they're staying away from me while I sing Mame. Dr. Jen Gunter, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. The piece at the New York Times headlined, I practice social distancing before coronavirus. It works. Everyone should go read it. Thank you again for chatting with us today, Dr. Jen. Uh, best to you and your family. Thank you, Dan. You too. Hi, Dan. I have a kind of current events, time-sensitive question that I'm hoping you can help me with. I live in a big European city and have been kind of breathlessly following the news of the coronavirus for the last month. And I'm one of those weirdos who's been like quietly prepping and buying masks and bottled water and all that kind of thing because it just looks like it could be a total shit show. And I have a boyfriend, and we've been together for three years. We don't live together, and he thinks I'm crazy for doing all of this. Anytime I've sort of brought up like, hey, you know, do you want to quarantine together? He's like, what? Quarantine? That's never going to happen. And he just thinks I'm a psycho for doing this. Um, So basically, we love each other to pieces, and if things were to go really sideways, I would want to be there to take care of him, but... We don't live together, and I kind of feel like we would drive each other crazy if we were locked up in an apartment together, especially because I live in a studio apartment where everything... The question is, should I think of the health of the relationship first in saying, let's quarantine separately if things go south, or is that insane, and since I have all of the prepping material and food and medicine, I should just invite him in. And if we break up afterwards, tough shit. Just a quick heads up before we get to my response. I got on the phone with this caller. The sound quality is a little bit off. Sorry about that. Hello? Hey, it's Dan Savage returning your call. Oh my God, Dan. Hi. (laughs) How's it going? Good. You sound like you're in good health still. I'm hopefully I'm having a tiny little fever, so I'm keeping an eye on it. Ah, so yeah. I think uh, I just listened to your call, and I think we want to retire the adjective uh, breathlessly when talking about yeah. what we're doing to prepare ourselves for this pandemic or in the, in the midst of this pandemic. Breathlessly, yeah, that word. Um, but I'm with you. I, I just uh, got home after a few weeks in Europe. Uh, I wasn't in Italy, but I was Italy adjacent. And the first thing I did was 
take my husband out to the grocery store. We didn't hoard, but we stocked mm. up just in case. Yeah. Soup pasta ramen. Yeah, that's what you got to do. And he'd already ordered some masks online. So I, I think you're doing the right thing. And there's nothing about the foodstuffs that you've laid in or that we've laid in uh, that requires us to eat them in the next 10 days. Like, exactly. That's a, you know, if this is all just going to blow over. I could eat them in the next three months. Exactly. So, so I'm with you. That, that, that's not really your question. Your question is, do you let yeah. your boyfriend uh, die in the streets or do you invite <laughs> him into your studio apartment where you might murder him? Right. Now, just as an update, we did actually have like uh, the talk moment because actually I'm still in Spain and of course there's a travel ban starting. So there was a moment where I was like, okay, uh, let's really hash this out. Do we do this together or should I even, you know, you know, I love you, but should I just uh, run for the hills and go back to the States? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and he was, you know, he, basically was of the mind of yeah uh we will kill each other <laughs> there's oh no gosh. way i can really you know and and truly because he said well you wouldn't want to spend day in and day out at my apartment either because i selfishly like my apartment and he of course likes his um yeah but that's how so, you feel right yeah. now before the shit has yeah. really hit the fan and a, a point totally. of clarification our idiot president got on tv last week announced a ban on all travel between Europe and the United States, forgot to mention all the countries that it didn't include and forgot to mention that uh, Americans and, and citizens and residents and their families were still allowed to travel and goods were still allowed to be shipped back and forth, even though he specifically said that the ban applied to goods too. Uh, and we don't know if he was just you know, stroking out in that moment or yeah. lying to try to sow panic uh, as he xenophobically yeah. described this as a foreign virus such yeah. you know even in the darkest days of the hiv aids epidemic no one described this uh, hiv as a foreign virus a virus is something yeah. that the world kicks out and everyone is at risk for uh, not a conspiracy hatched by the communist government of china as some people are suggesting online so just to be clear the travel yeah. ban isn't going to maroon you there in spain if you do decide at some point to come home you know what i would point to 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 reassure you both you know, in extremists, and there's a terrific piece up at the New York Times right now about the reaction that people had in Anchorage after there was a 9.2 earthquake. And mm-hmm. the government, it was in the, I think, early 60s, late 50s, the government at the time had sort of a research squad because they wanted to know how people would react to a nuclear attack on a city. And they expected mm-hmm. that people would go feral and loot and rob and kill each other and you know break into each other's houses to steal food. And when the researchers got there, what they found was mass cooperation and people Hmm. banding together to help each other out and not hoarding the foods or or resources and no mayhem or murder in the streets. People sort of like downshifted uh, away from conflict to cooperation. And that was a whole city, you know, with 100,000 people in it. I imagine that the two of you, as a little universe unto yourselves, if you were marooned in your studio apartment, some part of your survival instinct would downshift to cooperation and conflict avoidance. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you run a conflict because you feel like conflict has to be resolved for the relationship to succeed. You know, we have to work through this. We have to talk through this, argue through this and come out on the other side. But sometimes, you know, the best deal thing you should do when there's a conflict when you can't really handle it right now is to say, we're not going to deal with this right now. We're going to walk around it. You know, yeah. 
And so in addition to pointing to that article in the New York Times about the Anchorage earthquake, I would also point to all of these people who've been marooned for weeks, uh, a month or more, mm-hmm. on cruise ships yeah. with partners, some of them locked in windowless inside cabins for weeks. And there hasn't been a yes. single murder-suicide. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think that uh, sort of the thing about that, that adaptation feeling, I did, you know, just in the 24 hours since we had the talk, where he kind of came to grips with the concept of I might leave. Mm-hmm. So the first thing was sort of like, do whatever you want. We can't possibly be quarantined together. You're crazy. Go find your family. It's fine. In the 24 hours since that talk, and especially since I haven't, I started to have some sort of symptoms. I don't know if it's that, fingers crossed, knock on wood, but I, you know, do have a little bit of a fever. He's actually also downshifted to being much more there for me, much more nurturing and has kind of made little comments of like, see, we could sort of do this together. You know, I'll be here to take care of you. So I, I think you're right that there is kind of like, there's talking about it and thinking about it. And then there's when shit hits the fan. Right. And what you're talking, what you're thinking about often when you talk about, you know, an extreme circumstance is how we interact just casually. And when there isn't this pressure, this other thing going on. Uh, this you know this outside force that we're both yeah. you know linking arms and reacting to you know a lot, I know a lot of parents out there Terry and I are parents um, and sometimes parents are fighting and in conflict and then their kid blows up or one of their kid catches fire in some spectacular yeah. way and you just stop fighting you just link arms and deal with the crisis that is yours right. to handle together the other thing is you don't have to make this decision right now they're not right there's no quarantining going on uh, in the part of Europe where you are and speaking from an epicenter here in the United States, I would stay in the place with socialized medicine. Okay. (laughs) I I would stay in the place with the socialist president who believes in science. Yeah. As opposed to this clown show, shit show that we're enduring here with our fucking idiot president where there aren't, they don't want to test because they don't want to know the actual numbers of cases. Exactly. You know, I'm tempted to get on a plane, fly to Spain and join you in your apartment with all your foodstuffs too (laughs) to get the fuck out of here. I have so many great snacks. (laughs) I hope you have like a Netflix password, yours or someone else's that you've swiped. I'm totally set up. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that you guys could get through this. And who knows, maybe you'd be, right. uh, have more perspective on, and a better handle on, on conflict. And, you know, sometimes until we confront a real crisis in our relationships, the small conflicts that we have seem enormous. They seem like the mountains when in reality they're the molehills. Yeah. Until we actually get over that molehill and see a real mountain. And this is a real fucking mountain. And it's going to put a lot of things yeah. in perspective for people. And I feel like already that's kind of happened, just sort of even realizing, I always thought that I would always put my, you know, my mom and my grandmother and my my family back on the States first, like without a thought, the slightest sign of trouble, I would totally just bolt. But I ended up just bawling my eyes out last night, just at the thought of being separated for however long we'd be separated. And it kind of, I did have to have that corny moment of being like, oh my God, like I am realizing just how important you are to me because I have to, you know, we are in this crisis and I'm seeing things with a perspective that is much more, uh, 
you know, the priorities become very obvious and it has definitely like made me realize just how much I fucking love them. <laughs> One thing to bear in mind though, and this is the, my final thought for you, my final bit of advice. If you guys move in together into your studio apartment and get along and come through this, if there is a quarantine, if we're all locked up for months and months, uh, and it, you know, it works out, that doesn't mean you have to live together in the future. You know, there are some relationships that work because people keep their own apartments because people do have separate... oh, yeah, that's, you know, I've always said that the only reason why we've been together this long is that we both, you know, we're both lone wolves and we both have our own studio apartments and that's made it work for sure. That is the secret to the success of a lot of relationships. And then people think, oh God, you know, we've lived in our own places for so long. Obviously if you live together, they move in together and it doesn't work. And then they break up when actually they just need to move the fuck out again. They need to return totally. to what did work for them. So if you guys wind up in the studio apartment for months and months and it works, please don't take that as a signal that you have to live in that studio apartment together forever. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck. Hey there, Maya. It's a, it's a couple of days after we first spoke to you. And when we first got on the phone, Spain wasn't in lockdown and people weren't quarantined yet now spain is in lockdown people are quarantined and we wanted to call you back and ask your boyfriend is he your quarantine he is my quarantine he's actually here right now pretending not to be <laughs> uh so how are you guys doing how's it been the first few days locked up together you were concerned well i think that um so far so good on some level the fact that we kind of chose to do this i had a moment there where i was um kind of wondering if i should stay here or if i should try to get back to my family in the states and um you know we basically took a couple of days to sort of talk about it and think about it and stuff and um just realize that besides the public health risk that it could be of you know trying to travel at this time and i wasn't feeling too hot and we spent the first I don't know, 24 or 48 hours together. And it's just been like, kind of like such a fun time. And so kind of like reassuring to be together. That's good to hear that you guys are getting along. Also good to hear that you didn't get on a plane and try to get home. I'm sure you yeah. saw, the, saw the photos from Dallas and yeah. Chicago and JFK of just the shit show because there was no preparation for people coming home on yeah. some sorters uh, and people basically forced into waiting rooms for seven, eight hours, cheek by jowl. If you hadn't contracted the coronavirus in Europe before you got home, you very likely contracted it in line at O'Hare. So good choice. Exactly. Good call to stay exactly. uh, put in Spain with your boyfriend. Glad to know you guys are getting along. We might give you a call back in a couple of weeks to see if we're all still locked <laughs> up. Do. Do. Um, so far, so good. Uh, and it has been kind of just sort of a little bit of feeling like, okay, let's do this. It's camping. We eat hot dogs. We're watching The Sopranos. It's like a whole thing. It's fun. Can I ask you a, a, a rude and personal question? Please. Are you guys having a lot of sex? Some people out there say that you know, being isolated like this and holding up, uh, is making them horny. Some people say it's making them not at all horny, the opposite of horny, tanking libidos. Uh, which side of the line do you guys fall on? Uh, a little bit in the middle, but I would not say this is like, I, I do feel like there is some kind of weird, like crisis part of my brain that feels like it's always a little bit on. So like the impetus is much more on like comfort. Mm -hmm. I feel like we maybe have never been so affectionate with each other. And like, 
loving each other up, but it doesn't necessarily like it's not necessarily in a sexy way. It's more like, oh, the world is ending, but hold me. <laughs> well, I think that kind of intimacy is just as important. It doesn't always have to be about smushing genitals together. Thank you so much for getting back on the phone. Good luck to you and your boyfriend there in Spain. Uh, I hope you guys continue to enjoy your enforced time together. All right. Thank you so much. There is some good news out there, I guess. Coronavirus, not a sexually transmitted infection. That said, you could get it having sex with someone. What makes something a sexually transmitted infection versus not a sexually transmitted infection? Dr. Debbie Herbenick, professor at the Indiana University School of Public Health and frequent Savage Lovecast guest, joins us to explain. Dr. Herbenick, thank you for jumping on the phone. Of course. So coronavirus, not a sexually transmitted infection. Some people, perhaps some dumb people out there, think that means they can still hook up with randos at this moment. Not true, right? Not true, because, you know, if you're hooking up with randos or, or partners and spouses, you have close contact, presumably. So, you know, safer sex would be like, you know, video chats and texting and things like that. But if you are right there with people, then, um, you know, you're breathing on them. They're breathing on you. You might cough or sneeze on each other. You're kissing maybe sometimes. So you're still, you know, at risk. So coronavirus, while not a sexually transmitted infection, can be transmitted sexually through sexual contact. What makes something an STI versus not an STI? You know, the flu doesn't appear on lists of STI, but if you had sex with someone who has the flu, you could get the flu. Leukemia doesn't appear, but if you had sex with someone who had leukemia, you're not going to get leukemia. So what's the distinction there between an STI versus not an STI? You know, it's a great question, and the divisions aren't always hard and fast, right? So there are um, plenty of STIs, most STIs, that you can also transmit, through, um, for example, through vaginal deliveries, through giving birth, um, some through, you know, breast milk like HIV. Um, so it's not that just because something in an STI that it can't be transmitted other ways. Um, in addition, there are other things like Zika, for example, that are mostly transmitted through um, mosquitoes. Um, but also can be transmitted sexually. So when Zika came up, it was found in semen. It was found to be able to be passed from person to person. It was indeed found that there were cases where that happened, where somebody had gotten Zika through a mosquito and then passed it on sexually. And yet I don't see Zika on the CDC's list of sexually transmitted infections. So so what gets you the gong? If you're an ambitious little disease and you want to get on that list of STIs, (laughs) what do you have to do? You know, the CDC did have Zika for a while. I don't know what it does, what it has now, but it was listing it for a while. And depending on where you traveled, um, I, I had pictures of, um, you know, TSA stuff at the time where some places were warning about sexual transmission. So mainly, you know, for something to really be considered an STI and to make it on those lists, um, it is primarily transmitted through um, sexual contact, sexual behaviors, vaginal fluids, semen, the anus. Um, so not transmitted like, airborne walking down the street, not transmitted through shaking hands or coughing, um, but primarily has sexual transmission. So people who have heard, and there are a lot of people out there who only half pay attention to anything and everything that happens. People have heard that coronavirus can't be transmitted sexually. Please don't interpret that as the go-ahead to jump on Grindr or jump on Tinder and pass the time during a moment we should all be distancing ourselves physically, if not socially, from one another. By hooking up with randos. Don't do that. Right. Physical distance, social distance, it's a real thing. And even if you have no symptoms or somebody else has no symptoms, 
um, it seems to be the best we know right now that coronavirus can still be passed from person to person. So it doesn't matter how, just like, you know, looking at someone's genitals doesn't tell us anything about whether or not they have, you know, chlamydia, gonorrhea, herpes, things like that. Also looking at somebody's face and look at their body and looking for symptoms doesn't tell us whether or not they have coronavirus. Because someone can be asymptomatic and shedding the virus and infecting other people and show no symptoms. Correct. Oh my gosh. These are difficult times. I hope you're... And that's scary. It is scary. Yeah, we need to stay home. We, we need to stay home. We need to stay home. We, and you know, if you want to get it off with strangers, we're all cam girls now. We're all cam boys now. Cam whore it up. Get online. That would be fine. That would be safe. But, you know, a lot of people are transitioning to camming, whether it's just for consensual, like, you know, stuff that you do with partners or even for sex work, right? Like a lot of sex workers are moving online. So if you haven't seen your favorite sex worker in person, you can look to find them online through camming. And to be clear, the the recommendations I've read that, it, you know, if you have an intimate partner that you are fluid bonded with and you guys are quarantined together, you can be each other's quarantine you can still have sex with that person because the kind of contact that you're already having uh, means that you shouldn't, you know, forego sexual contact with a regular partner that you are socially isolating or socially distancing yourself from others with. It's just the rando thing that people need to be smart about. Yeah, I think, I think for the most part, except in cases where um, like if somebody is known to have coronavirus and their partner doesn't seem to be, and they have the space in their home, um, I've seen some recommendations about like stay in your room, use your own bathroom if you can, but not everyone's going to be in that situation, right? I mean, even if somebody did have it and the other person didn't, um, not everybody has more than one bathroom in their home or a separate, you know, bedroom where they can go to, let alone for like two weeks. So this is, you know, these are some of the challenges that we're all facing and the things we have to take into consideration are like how healthy are our partners? You know, do we have a much older partner? Do we have a partner who is, um, you know, has their health compromised in some way. And if that's the case and we think we might have it or we do have it and then they don't, then right. we should take extra precautions if our living space allows it. But if you both don't have it, you can go for it. Then but, have but if you have an immunocompromised <laughs> partner or a much older partner, you might want to err on the side of caution. And even if you believe yourself not to have it, just in case you're one of those people who has it and is asymptomatic at this moment, you might want to then not have sex with your at-risk partner or your partner who's more at risk uh, of serious health consequences if they should contract coronavirus. But if you're both healthy, not an ass-risk groups, and you're quarantining together, you can go for it. That sounds good. Dr. Debbie Herbenick, thank you so much for jumping on the phone this morning and uh, all the best to you and your family. Thank you. Stay safe. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Brian Earp. He's the co-author, along with Julian Savalescu, of Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Brian is a cognitive scientist and ethicist at Yale University and Oxford University. She probably call you Dr. Earp, not Brian. Hey, Dr. Earp, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, the new book looks fascinating. But before we get to the drugs part, can we talk about love uh, yeah. you know, we kind of know it when we feel it, kind of like we know porn when we see it. But what does the science say that love actually is? Well, there's been an upshot in research on what you might think of as the biological dimensions of love. So we don't think that love is just down to brain chemicals. And if you have a map of what's going on in somebody's neurons, you've got a full account of love. We think that love has to do with those subjective feelings and has to do with uh, you know, how certain relationships are conceptualized in a society. But there hasn't 
until recently been much attention paid to the brain level dimensions of love. And we're now realizing that those aspects can be potentially manipulated through chemicals. And in fact, some drugs that we already ingest for other purposes, like antidepressant medication, is having effects on our romantic neurochemistry. So partly what we're arguing for is just we need to be measuring that and paying attention to that uh, because some of these drugs are going to be potentially helping our relationships and others of them might be subtly harming our relationships. And we should uh, we should know what we're getting into. And part of the argument in the book is if we know that certain drugs can help relationships, uh, that we might want to lean into those drugs or not regard that help that a drug can give to a relationship as a side effect to be avoided or not even to be acknowledged, but as something we might want to, I guess, weaponize might be too strong a word, but deploy? Well, there's there's something really new about this idea and also sort of old about it. So one one set of drugs we're looking at are uh, is MDMA, uh, which is known as ecstasy when it's used in a kind of recreational context, and also some of the psychedelic drugs that are are making a, a renaissance in in medicine for treatment of things like post traumatic stress disorder. And so one one thing we say is if we're going to be bringing these really powerful drugs back into mainstream medicine, instead of only looking at individual symptoms like you know, what am, what am I dealing with in terms of PTSD, we should be measuring the interpersonal effects of these drugs. And the inspiration for that is, is a throwback to the 1980s when MDMA was initially used in a therapeutic context for couples therapy. And this was before it got picked up on the rave scene and it became something that triggered a conservative backlash. It was being used right. to really good effect uh, to help couples work through some really deep issues that otherwise they wouldn't want to talk about. So we're we're in one sense saying, let's bring that old model back. And instead of thinking of this drug only as medicine that's treating a disease, what if you could use it in a context where it just might help people improve their lives without first having to pathologize them or suggest they have some sort of relationship disorder that needs to be treated? It's funny. I mean, it's funny. It's bitterly ironic and typical that here was this drug that had a positive impact on people who were suffering with PTSD, on uh, in couples counseling, it was really effective, but then too many people began to have fun with it, and so it had to be banned, and it had to be criminalized, and it was no longer allowed to be used in these therapeutic settings where it had been terribly, terribly effective. It was just criminalized across the board. Yeah, the, the history of that is pretty distressing. I think part of why it came to be seen, I mean, talking about MDMA now as a dangerous drug, is that when people were using MDMA at raves, they were doing it while they were also drunk and taking other drugs and dancing all night in hot warehouses and not drinking enough water. And so the, the confluence of all of those factors led to some dangerous situations and some people died. But because MDMA was being used in this recreational way, those of a sort of more conservative uh, killjoy kind of event decided, well, we, you know, it's got a, it's got a bad reputation now and we need to go ahead and ban it. But when that was proposed by the DEA, the uh, drug enforcement agency, a whole bunch of psychiatrists uh, came together and said, listen, we're using this drug therapeutically. It has massive medicinal value for people who are struggling with really deep issues of their psyche. And, and to put it on a, on a schedule one list, which says, you know, these are drugs that are dangerous and have no medical value. They said, that's just factually wrong. This is a drug that has proven medical value. And so it was really a ham-fisted political response of the DEA to go ahead and list it that way anyway, and over, over the objections of the scientific community. So you write uh, in Love Drugs about gray marriages. Uh, we've heard on this show about gray aces, gray asexuals. Uh, and I think everybody kind of knows what that is. It's somebody who's sort of on the asexual spectrum, but not like 100% asexual. 
they're mildly asexual. They're a little sexual, maybe gray sexual. What do you mean by gray marriages? Yeah, so I think a lot of people presume when uh, a couple goes into the divorce courts to to end their relationship that it's that it's those really abusive relationships where there's just a bunch of trauma and shouting and fighting and so forth. But there's some evidence to suggest that maybe the majority of divorces come from relationships which aren't particularly abusive. It's not that there's a fundamental compatibility between a couple or they're uh, throwing objects at each other, but rather they just kind of fallen out of love. They don't feel drawn toward each other. They, they went into the relationship and made this lifelong commitment in, in many of these cases because they felt this sense of passion and care t- toward each other. And, and over time, that feeling has kind of left them. And so they may have some children in tow and they think, well, I don't know, what, why are we even staying together anymore? And they'll, they'll move toward divorce in those cases. And is it that the feeling left them or the, those feelings are obscured? You know, I think about the scars that build up over time and really just about yeah. any long-term relationship where two people are yeah. by design or default going to be in conflict a, a lot, like living together with one person for a very long time is hard. And there's just this human tendency to keep score, to relitigate past grievances. And it's not quite PTSD in a, a long-term relationship, but sometimes that scorekeeping and, and grievance relitigating can feel PTSD adjacent and there's something about mdma that can help you connect to what drew you together in the first place yeah so we we mentioned in the book that uh trauma falls along a spectrum so when you get diagnosed with ptsd it just means you've checked off enough boxes to count as having a clinical disorder but a lot of relationships have kind of subclinical trauma associated with them and a lot of that trauma gets suppressed or, or avoided and you get into these ruts of these uh, learned behaviors where, you know, your partner brings up their feeling about such and so, and you just get defensive and shut down and you don't want to talk about it. And that can be one of the main means by which you, you grow apart and, and fail to have that sense of connection and urgency that you, you might've had in the beginning. And what MDMA does is it temporarily suppresses that automatic knee jerk kind of fear response when you're confronted with, uh, something that is, is traumatic to some degree or another. And so instead of running away from it or shutting down or just giving some sort of defensive response, you and your partner in this therapeutic setting with the help of a, a trained therapist to, to, to um, aid you in working through it together, you can actually bring some of those things to the surface and really deal with them. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're just going to fall back in love again. It might be that you are able to talk about things that reaffirm your view that you should split up. So it's not just a pro-love drug that's going to bring people together no matter what, but it is going to help them have a more honest conversation. Right. But maybe you can talk about splitting up from a place of, of love and mutual support with the aid of the therapist and the drug. You know, I've, I have recommended um, MDMA casually on this show before. I get a lot of pushback when I do that drugs are bad. And, you know, yeah. the argument also often also is like whatever you're feeling on MDMA, the love drug is false. You know, you have these like overwhelming right. feelings of compassion and love and connection, but that's just the drug. That's not a genuine feeling coming from inside you. But your argument is that it is a genuine feeling that the drug is helping you tap. Right. I mean, so there's two different ways you can think about what a drug is doing. When you look at conventional SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the most common class of antidepressants. Uh, some ways of thinking about what that does for some people is they have these real emotions, maybe real suffering or sorrow that, that is a, a rational response to the world. And then the drugs can, can be seen as covering up their real feelings. But for other people, when they feel that the, the sadness is, 
is is not the, the real them. They feel that the drug kind of lifts a veil and it allows them to engage with the world in what feels like a truer version of themselves. And so drugs can have these different effects. But but what is happening with MDMA is is not so much that it causes you to have feelings that are alien to you, but rather it can help you actually get in touch with the feelings that are really there, but may have been obscured by these, these defense mechanisms. Um, now, if you're meeting somebody at a club and you're on MDMA and you feel suddenly really warm and toward them and you want to, you want to connect with them and you don't actually have a, a, a baseline of an authentic connection with them, then that, that could be, that could be an authentic, it could be a false feeling that's going to fade as soon as the drug wears off. But if you've got a couple that's been together for 15 years and they know each other inside and out, MDMA is more likely to have the sort of revealing effect rather than the uh, covering up effect. I have to say, and this is kind of a full disclosure moment, you know, I'm not just the host of the show, like they used to say in those famous ads for hair replacement systems for men. I'm not just the host. I'm also a client. Like uh, I've been with my my husband for 25 years. Uh, We have had like rocky patches and there was a particularly rocky patch a a couple of years ago where we just didn't know whether or not we were going to, make it to 25 years and we got a cabin in the woods and we got our hands on some MDMA and it, you know, it helped, but we were doing it wrong. This is not what you recommend in the book that everybody go like get street MDMA and hang out with their husbands. The, The recommendation is a guided meditation on MDMA in a clinical setting with a therapist there to facilitate and not just the couple in the woods on MDMA. But I have to tell you as one half of the couple in the woods on MDMA a couple of years ago, it worked. I, you know, have been reading about your book uh, and and really responding to this argument about the efficacy of MDMA in this kind of you know, long-term relationship where there are the grievances and the, the scorekeeping and, and the disconnect. And it did help us get past it. It was really effective, but we did it wrong. It's not your recommendation. One reason why we're being cautious about suggesting that this only be done in a therapeutic, controlled, careful setting is because it's precisely the the recreational or, or extra-legal use of these drugs in, in the 1960s and 70s that caused that conservative backlash and, and led to the prohibition of the drugs and drove them underground for something like 50 years. And so the scientific community and the therapeutic community and the psychiatrists who were convinced that these drugs could be transformatively positive for some people have now realized that, well, if we're going to bring these back into the culture, it's got to be in the most careful, most regulated, most uh, uh, scientifically responsible way possible. And that's not just for political reasons. It's also for, for reasons to do with the genuine risks involved in taking drugs that have pretty serious effects on your mental state. So it's mm-hmm. not just that it has some physiological effect that fades away. Some people, if, for example, they have, they're dealing with psychosis or they've got some buried traumas that maybe if they come to the surface and aren't dealt with properly could be very destructive to their lives or relationships. So it, it really is a genuine ethical concern that if you, and it's good that it works and it worked in your case. And I'm sure there are couples who've experimented on their own and have found that it's been very positive, but what you don't know and what you don't hear about are the cases where for, for some people, maybe it brought up a lot of serious trauma, but they didn't actually have the guidance of a trained counselor to help them integrate that information into their life, and it could have been very destructive. So if we're going to bring these powerful drugs back into society, we're, we're, we're very convinced that the way to do it is the slow, careful route, not the self-experimentation route, um, for political reasons and for, for therapeutic reasons. Can we jump back just to, to, to New Love for a second? Because this is all, I, I think, very confusing for human beings and, and, and very mysterious. You know, we've all had those yeah. great great one-night stands and thought, okay, I've been there, I've done them. Even though the sex was objectively awesome, there was no strong desire to see that person again. 
And then we have yeah. a really good one night stand with someone else or even just a hot but brief makeout session. And we're like, I have to see this person again or I will die. Yeah. yeah. What what is the the chemical, the mechanism? What is the what that makes the difference there? That's that's so interesting. There's there's really little research on what specifically makes particular people grab your your soul in that way and feel so overwhelmingly attracted to you physically and otherwise. Um, there's, there's some rough path at the kinds of chemicals that are involved. It's got dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline and all this is coursing through you. But the question is, why doesn't that happen in the other case? Why is it only that particular person? And there's some reason to think that the, the kind of attraction you're referring to where you're just gripped by the other person's whole being is something that could be very idiosyncratic and it has to do with a particular way in which you're, uh, neurochemistry and their neurochemistry and the sorts of things you're attracted to in your past scripts about what sorts of stuff matters to you and matters to them. If those things align in the right way, it can be explosive in a really positive way. But there aren't very good general theories of, of what can explain that. It, it tends to come down to the particular situation of each uh, uh, couple uh, uh, hooking up. Okay, before I let you go, I do have one bone to pick with you. Um, there are sure. dr- drugs out there that lower people's libidos. Uh, and there's right. side effects, particularly a lot of SSRIs uh, can can lower someone's libido. And sometimes yeah. uh, it is an engine of conflict in relationships that one partner has a high libido and one partner has a lower libido. Um, and you argue that, you know, if there's a relationship and there's a conflict and a high libido and a low libido and the person with the higher libido is already on a drug that some other version of that drug may lower the libido, it may be good for the relationship to shift the person with the higher libido to the drug that lowers libido to bring them into harmony. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine that in relationships with high libido, low libido, it's always the high libido that's pathologized. That if we can just fix this sex monster, there will right, be right. peace. I guess there aren't a lot of drugs out there that that spike libido. That's what, you know, everyone's running around in circles trying to create the female Viagra, uh, which is not to make women, you know, capable of having sex that they want to have or more capable of it. It's to induce desire. And there's no drug that does that. There's no Spanish fly, but it does always seem to be a thing. And, and, you know, it just kind of leapt out at me that here again, the solution, the high libido, low libido, and maybe it's the only solution available because there isn't the drug that makes somebody with a low libido hornier, but the solution is always to, castrate in a sense symbolically yeah higher libido person and that just kind of rubs me the wrong way that's a high libido totally (laughs) yeah yeah i mean a major concern of our book is precisely that we don't want to pathologize uh you know naturally occurring uh, libidos of different levels in fact we have a whole section where we talk about the so-called female viagra which doesn't seem to particularly work no but our, our issue there is that that there is this pathologization where the drug companies got together and said well we've got this drug that who we you know we'd like to have a market viagra only is for men so what can we do to get the other half of the the, the human race into our our pocket and they said well let's come up with a libido boosting drug but then in order to get that on the market they had to come up with some sort of disease or disorder where they could imply that there are all these women out there with pathologically low libidos and we we explicitly reject that view we say listen people's libidos are whatever they are and in some cases there might be some underlying pathology that can explain why it's far outside the mean or something like that but we should we don't need to go the pathologization route we can just say people's libidos are whatever they are a high libido can be good or bad a low libido can be good or bad it depends on the values of the couple 
So we're saying here that if a person is, is on a drug that uh, is, is treating their depression, let's say, but that doesn't have a side effect on their libido, and they find that their partner, is, they've tried everything they can to try to raise their partner's libido, which maybe should be preferred. I, you know, I don't think we should pathologize high libidos. And if all those, those means have failed, then they could switch their drug to a different antidepressant medication that has the side effect of lowering libido, and they find that that can resolve tensions in the relationship, that that might be permissible in those cases. But as a general rule, I certainly don't think we should be taking high libidos as being evidence of something wrong. That is a relief to hear. Brian Earp is the author, along with Julian Savalescu, of Love, Drugs, the Chemical Future of Relationships. He's a cognitive scientist and ethicist at Yale University and Oxford University. Thank you, Brian, for jumping on the phone. It was a, a fascinating conversation, and uh, I, I recommend the book uh, highly. Thanks, Dan. That means a lot to me, and it was great to speak with you. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy Outrisk youth. I just found out some bad news, uh, so I'm sorry how I sound. Um, I was wondering what the appropriate amount of, like, screw-ups are for there to be in a relationship. I know you've said before that long-term relationships require forgiveness, and you're all but guaranteed um, to be betrayed and to go through heartbreak and you know, the successful ones are the ones that are able to still work through that. Um, I'm just curious, like, how often should you expect that and how many times? My uh, now husband um, cheated on me. And let's see, the first time anything like a weird happened was years and years ago. Um, we've been together for like 10 years. We've been married for like half that time. He, uh, he, it was on his email. I just happened to see it. He was like emailing one of those like Craigslist, like, you know, email me to date me women that send them pictures. I guess this was a long time ago. I confronted him and he had said that his coworker, um, had emailed this email address and the woman on the other side was going to go on a date with him, but he thought that it might be a scam. And so he asked my husband to email her too and to see if, you know, he was kind of like, so just like she was saying the same things to everybody, I guess. I don't know. I mean, he was probably lying, but, um, you know, I accepted it and moved on, moved on. The next time was, uh, he was on some random app, like chatting app, where you're like anonymous, and he was just like sexting um, all the time. Uh, this was a period of time that I was like super, super busy at work, and so he was doing that, I guess. I basically told him after that that, you know, this is not anything that I'll deal with ever again. Like, I, I refuse to do it. It's, it's not something that I want to deal with. And then I just found this out today. So I don't know. Like, is, is this when you pull the plug? I, I just, I don't know what is appropriate. Like, at, at what point am I the idiot for forgiving him all the time? I can obviously hear how upset you are by what you've discovered. And my heart goes out to you. And I don't want to make this worse for you than it already is. But I'm afraid that what I have to say next may be painful for you to hear. This is who your husband is. Your husband is who he's always been throughout this relationship, and it is unlikely to change. And so you're going to have, if this is unacceptable to you, if your husband 
sleeping with other people, flirting with other people, sexting with other people is unacceptable to you. It's If it's something that you can't adjust your expectations to, if not allow for, turn a blind eye to, tolerate, put out of your mind, staying in this marriage is going to make you miserable. You are going to return to this place of heartbreak and pain. He is going to drag you to this place of heartbreak and pain again and again and again. He, he has already dragged you to this place again and again and again. And it sounds like it's just as painful now as it was 10 years ago. And the pain is compounded by the humiliation of being lied to and then feeling like a fool for believing him. Your husband shouldn't have made a monogamous commitment that he couldn't keep. The culture pressures people into making monogamous commitments that sometimes they're aware they can't keep, but sometimes only discover over the course of the supposedly monogamous relationship that they entered into willingly that they are incapable of keeping. Your husband can't be faithful to you in the way you would like your partner to be faithful to you. I don't know what else your marriage is about. You say nothing else about your husband, whether he's a good and decent person, whether you guys have kids, whether you are, except for this conflict, a good team, whether you enjoy his company, whether you have similar goals in life. I don't know what else is on the other side of the scales. On one side of the scales, we have his obvious propensity for toward infidelity, his desire for outside sexual contact and and, and outside sexual affirmation about his attractiveness, the swapping of sex with other people, and now the cheating. What's on the other side of the scales? Does it outweigh, does whatever pleasures and joy that this man bring into your life, does it outweigh the pain that the cheating and the negation the cheating represents brings into your life? If it does, there are people who stay in marriages where they are cheated on on an almost regular basis where they're, they've married someone who's a serial adulterer and choose to stay in those marriages and live with that pain and endure it when it flares up and police their partner to keep them from cheating on them as often as they might otherwise. And that requires a lot of effort to police someone in that way because they regard everything else on the other side of the scales as worth it. You have to ask yourself if everything else on the other side of the scale opposite the infidelity is worth it. If it is and you choose to stay, you're going to be in this place again and again and again. If that thought upsets you, terrifies you, if that's not something that you can live with, you can leave this, you can leave him for this reason. This is a reason that a lot of people end relationships, infidelities. Knowing what we know about long-term committed relationship, leaving this guy there's no guarantee that the next guy you're with won't also sext with somebody else, be attracted to other people. I would challenge you before you move on to someone else to ask yourself if your expectations are realistic. It is realistic to expect that someone who makes a monogamous commitment will endeavor to honor that monogamous commitment. It is not realistic to expect that the person that you're with for years or decades won't sometimes be attracted to other people. In our connected age where everybody has a phone in their pocket that makes not just looking at porn possible, but interacting with others who may or may not be attracted to them possible, people will seek that kind of outside affirmation. People used to seek that in 
bars and at work and their wife or husband at home w- was none the wiser that they were occasionally flirting with a coworker or flirting with somebody harmlessly in a bar. Cheating isn't harmless flirting, of course, and it can be very emotionally damaging for the person who's made the monogamous commitment who can honor it to be cheated on. But ask yourself before you partner with somebody else, if you indeed do leave this guy, what can you endure? Like if finding out that your partner has, you know, gone on a webcam or, you know, swapped a couple of sex with somebody that they were attracted to that they never have any intention of touching physically, is that something that you could endure and live with? Because the odds that that'll happen in your future relationships, subsequent relationships, these days are pretty high. So if this man brings more pain into your life than joy, leave him. If this is something that you can't abide or tolerate, including the being lied to about it, which is galling and humiliating, leave him. More joy? Maybe stay. Maybe get into couples counseling. But he is who he is, and this is unlikely to change. The very least, he will get you will catch him in the future sexting with somebody, flirting with somebody, fantasizing about being with somebody else, basically with the enhancements of somebody else out there on the other end of the phone saying they would like to fuck him. And if you can't handle that, go. But you need to have a realistic conversation with your future partners about what you can and can't endure, what you can and can't handle. And I think the odds that you might wind up with somebody else occasionally flirts with other people are pretty high. I would ask you if you have not yourself occasionally flirted with other people, perhaps not in a way that was as entangling as your husband's flirtations with other people, short of his infidelities with other people have been, but almost everyone does this to some limited extent. And so don't leave expecting that you'll never be in this position ever again, because odds are you will. But don't stay if the only way you'll be happy staying is if your husband magically becomes someone he's proven to you again and again, he is not. Hey, Dan. Uh, Straight male calling from Canada. Uh, Got a bit of a problem here. Uh, I was seeing this woman for for about two years, and uh, we had an okay relationship. I mean, there was a lot of, like, sort of passion to it, but she, it turned abusive. Uh, She started hitting me. Uh, screaming at me for the smallest things, uh, uh, eventually sort of smashing my car windshield at one point, um, throwing things around the house, and uh, she cheated on me twice. So yeah, it was bad. We uh, we broke up. I broke up with her. And then I, I started to try to move on with my life. Started seeing this new uh, person who's really, really great. Uh, we get along so well. We never fight. Uh, she's just really kind, and I'm really happy to kind of get out of a bad relationship and get into a new one. My problem is that... Uh, my ex does not approve of this person. Uh, I wasn't going to tell her about it. I tried to just cut ties in general, but one of her friends told her that uh, I'd been seeing this new person, and uh, she blew up. She started calling and texting me constantly, and then started threatening to stalk us uh, and uh, try to make sure we weren't going to see each other. Originally, I just kind of tried to lie about it and, and cover my tracks after that happened, because I'm really happy in this new relationship, but um, now she's starting to threaten to kill herself if she finds out, and uh, she she is persistent and threatening to stalk us, and I just don't know that I can keep up, uh, even though this is a really great relationship, I don't know if I can keep it up 
because of all of this. And I don't want to let this win. She was kind of terrible to me, the whole relationship. Uh, but I just, I would be devastated if she were to do something. I, I just kind of don't know what to do anymore. And I'd really appreciate her advice. Document the stalking threats. Save those texts. Save those emails. Talk to a lawyer. Spend a couple of hundred bucks. Send her a cease and desist letter. Threaten to get a restraining order against her. And then block her fucking numbers and call her fucking bluff. She is not going to off herself if you see this other woman. She's just trying to use that threat as a veto to control you. And you are allowing her to control you with that threat to harm herself. It is an idle threat. And God rip out my tongue for what I'm about to say next. If it isn't an idle threat, well, then problem solved, I guess. But I don't think that she is going to harm herself. This is a tool. It is a weapon that she is using against you. You need to cut her out of your life. Emphatically, you are engaging with an abusive romantic partner. You are allowing her to get inside your head. You are allowing her to have some space and claim and purchase on your time and your attention. And you need to cut her off and cut her out. And once she sees that she is cut off and cut out, She is highly likely to go the fuck away and seek out some other person that she can manipulate and terrorize and control once she understands that you are not that person and you will avail yourself of the legal remedies that are available to you and you will avail yourself of the legal remedies at hand, letters from lawyers, restraining orders, blocking her ass on all social media platforms, blocking her number, changing yours if you must. And cutting her out of your life, root and fucking branch. And also cutting out of your life any mutual friends who run to her with information about who you're dating. You don't need that person in your life either. But you're going to have to call your bluff. Listen, back up, back up this show and listen to your question. You've met someone that you really like, that you have great sex with, you have a great rapport with, and a low-conflict relationship with, or so far a no-conflict relationship, no fights at all. And you are thinking about walking away from that person, dumping that person, because you have an angry ex who's sending you text messages threatening to harm herself? No. No, 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 no. You can't tolerate that. You cannot Put up with that. And just as an, an addendum, there are a lot of women out there with these kinds of exes, with exes like your ex, who have been stalked, who have been physically assaulted, who have been murdered by their angry, stalking, controlling exes. You rarely hear stories about women engaging in this kind of behavior. There are crazy bitches out there. There are toxic women out there who stalk their exes, who harass their exes, but very rarely are they physically violent. So you have less to worry about than a woman in your shoes might. And so I would advise you not to hesitate to push back hard and cut her off immediately and get that letter off and get that restraining order if things escalate. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. I leave you this tweet for the dude on episode 697 of the Savage Lovecast who wants to have more sex with his wife. Take a day and clean the entire house. I am not kidding. New moms are often exhausted trying to keep up with everything. The sexiest thing you can do is to take things off her plate. Trevor tweets, for your information, Savage Lovecast listeners, if you decide to buy a Savage Lovecast sponsored bidet, 
thanks to this toilet paper shortage, and you're looking it up in public, make sure you visit hellotushy.com and not just tushy.com. Everyone at the bar I'm at just got an eyeful. And finally, Crystal Joe Guerrero tweets, I am alone in a print shop listening to the Savage Lovecast and screaming at no one about this 20-year-old in episode 698 and her lame boyfriend. Get out, girl. You are missing out. Enjoy your 20s. You will regret it if you stay with this guy. All right, if you want me to read one of your tweets on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, this is in response to the woman who called in because she's um, in an open relationship and the guy she's dating is also in one, but his is a don't ask, don't tell, and he seems to be ashamed to be seen with her or wants to keep her hidden. Dan, you're being awfully generous by assuming that this guy doesn't want people to think he's having an affair. I think he's flat out having an affair. Um, If I want to go out with someone and he tells me he's in a don't ask, don't tell, I kind of want at least one time to get some clearance from his primary partner or his spouse to make sure that he's telling me the truth because it's all too easy for somebody to who wants to get into someone else's pants to just say oh yeah i'm in an open relationship but it's don't ask don't tell so you can't mention it you can't call me at home i can't be seen with you in public and then wait the other person doesn't feel like they are cheating uh, you're being far nicer to this man than i would be i would ask her to do a little bit more research and she might have to dt mfa I wanted to comment on the calls concerning age discordant relationships. When I was 20, I was with someone 45 for many years. When I was 45, I was with someone 23. I've looked at life from both sides now, and I know that it's better and easier for the younger person in the relationship. The younger person is with someone interesting and experienced. The sex is better for the younger person because they have the stamina, but the older one has the moves. Now that I'm older, I know that if you're going to be with someone significantly younger, you must let them have their freedom, but the younger one must understand that it's not an honor for an older person to be with them. Finding somebody younger is not the goal. It may in fact be a compromise. I'm in my late 50s and I get no attention from men my own age. The pool is limited. Men of my generation were young during the height of the AIDS crisis. Many, many are dead. Since the advent of marriage equality, Many of those remaining are married, and many of those who aren't may just be awful people. The extra weird part is the attention that I do get is almost always from very good-looking guys in their 20s. This is flattering, but awkward and embarrassing. I know that it can't be long-term, and I'm not looking to be a stage on which someone can play out their daddy scenes. I've inadvertently found myself in that weird situation in the past, and it's left me feeling used and a little humiliated. The younger man with the older girlfriend should understand that while she expresses a fear that she's robbing him of the experiences of his youth, she may not be letting him know that there are things she can't get from a younger man, like the mutuality she might want to share with someone of her own generation, someone who's in the same place as she, someone who can understand her in that way. He says that he's into older women, but he needs to understand she may experience this less as a compliment than a fetish. When a young man says to me, it's okay, I'm into older guys, my response is, me too. A generationally younger man isn't much of a consolation in my loneliness. The golden apple would be a guy my own age who I found sexy and deep and beautiful and hungry for the same connection that I crave. Hi, Dan. Calling about episode 698, the young woman invited to a wedding where all the guests were at required to come in costume. Uh, You told her she didn't have to go to the wedding, which is completely true. I'd like to offer her another couple of options. One is that she contact the happy couple and say cheerfully, I'm sorry, that option doesn't work for me. Would you like me to come wearing my own clothes? 
And if they say, oh, no, she should say, fine, I'd be happy to wear a costume. You provide it and pay for it, and I'll approve of it. These are two ways that I'd be happy to come to your wedding. She should do this very cheerfully. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also use the Voice Memo app on your smartphone to record your question. It's better sound quality, so we encourage you to do that and email us that recording at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. The micro edition of the Savage Lovecast is free every week, but for people who need more Savage Lovecast in your lives, you can subscribe to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. More calls, more questions, more guests, more show, no ads, savagelovecast.com. And you can also gift a subscription to Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. And if you've been on the fence, getting a Magnum subscription or gifting one now would really help us out and help keep the show coming. Thank you very much for to everyone who's already follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow dr jen gunter on twitter at dr jen gunter follow dr debbie herbenick on twitter at debbie herbenick and follow brian erp on twitter at brian david the savage love cast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and nancy and the tech savvy at risk youth and the callers and the commenters and the tweeters we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling.